Hi, friends. I'm Olivia. I'm Rod. And you're listening to Just One More Thing from Sunrise Church. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Just One More Thing from Sunrise Church. Today, we are covering the March 12th sermon, Behavior That's Becoming. But first, since we weren't here last week, is there anything you want to say about the March 5th sermon? What was that called? Against the Grain. Against the Grain. Anything that you want to address there? Yeah, my just one more thing for that previous week's sermon was in verse 15, Peter says he refers to them as being called. He said, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And so that's the imperative there, to be holy. And uh, we talked about in the sermon that holy means to set apart. It means to be separate from. And what's interesting in that word called is that God in his otherness, in his separateness from us, reaches out. He calls us from his otherness, and he reaches into our world to draw us to himself. And I think that's a big distinction between Christianity and just about every other religion in the world. All of the other religions uh, have man doing whatever he can do to try to get to God, to try to work to God. And Christianity, and I think to some extent uh, the Jewish religion, uh, gives a picture of a God who reaches out from his otherness, from his distinctiveness of being divine to reach down to us. So I thought that was interesting. I didn't cover it in the sermon, and I felt like it needed to be addressed. Yeah. Okay. So now looking a little further in First Peter, we covered chapter 1, verses 17 through 21 um, on March 12th. And so you looked at this or you titled this Behavior That's Becoming, and Peter starts off by saying, conduct yourselves in a manner. So what is it about what they could have done, I guess? Like, Why does he need to tell them, conduct yourselves in this way? Versus, what's the alternative? Well, I think there's behavior that's unbecoming of, of their position. And he gives them two reasons to do that. Um, one, he's, because that's the imperative, uh, conduct yourselves in fear or in awe or in, in a manner of respecting and reverencing God your Father. And he gives them two reasons to, for doing that. And he says uh, the first reason is because God is an impartial judge. And uh, if there was one moment in that sermon that I uh, kind of lit on was that aspect because that word, we, we talked about in the sermon, that word impartial, it means without a face, that God does not make any distinction in his judging. He doesn't— um, It's like the justice's blind statue with the blindfold over the eyes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, God is going to judge uh, not on the basis of a curve. He's going to judge everyone in a— in a fair manner, irregardless of who they are uh, as his children. Because he's talking about, I think, the judgment seat of Christ, the, the judgment seat that believers go through uh, at the what's called the Bema seat judgment. But he says we should conduct ourselves uh, in a manner that's becoming, if I want to use my uh, 
understanding of the passage because number one God is an impartial judge he he judges with a blindfold on to use your analogy and secondly it's because of the price that's been paid for us it hasn't been a price of uh, gold or silver or uh, or perishable things as the term Peter will use but it's been with the precious blood of Christ and uh, then he uses that as of of a spotless lamb. And, of course, that brings us back to all the imagery of uh, the Old Testament. You know, if there's one thing that I've really gotten in this first chapter of Peter, I've really um, enjoyed, is how many times he uses a picture to to communicate a concept. It's not just the abstract concept itself— but he links these in pictures that are going to be memorable and that are going to strike at the heart of, of who these believers are. And, and I think he does that so they can carry this information with them uh, for all of their lives. They can carry it in their hearts. And so I, I found that interesting. Yeah, especially when he compares it to things like silver and gold. Whenever they see that, it was kind of like what you were saying about the weather app where it's spurs us to action once we look at what the weather's going to be for the day. So it's that tangible reminder. Whenever we look at a weather app, we should remember, hey, there's other actions. Yeah, because the weather app doesn't say uh, it's going to be 22 degrees outside, carry a jacket. All it's doing, it's, it's giving you the information, and it assumes that you're going to know what to do with that information. And so uh, I was trying to link the information we have with the action that should follow, and, and especially in this passage, I think that's, uh, uh, that's the motivation for behavior that's becoming. The other thing that was interesting in this is when he ends this passage in verse 21, he says, so that, or the result of, of this information is that your faith and hope are in God. And I did not come across any commentators that made this link, but I just got to thinking, well, what else would their faith and hope be in? Well, it would tend to be in those perishable things of gold and silver. And so I think that's why he draws that contrast, so that they would not hope in the things that are, we're going to see this next week, fading away, the perishable things, the things that are fleeting, uh, but that they would hope in God who has demonstrated through the sacrifice of his son and through the resurrection, the victory that he won for us. And that's where our hope should lie, and that's where Peter wanted his readers back then, their hope to lie. So one thing that I did want to touch on, because I found this interesting, is, and once you said it, I was on board. Um, I had to do a paper on First Peter when I was in seminary, and I remember when I was writing it, saying that it was Jews and Gentiles, a, a mixed audience. But it seems like, while I think you would agree that it was Jews and Gentiles, it was more Jews. There might have been Gentiles mixed in. Is that correct? You don't think it was solely to Jews? No, I don't. Uh, but it's not like a 50-50. No, uh, I will tell you there is a great deal of controversy on that. That, that is probably the thing that, uh, besides the term salvation and what that uh, means, uh, because typically we use that as a broad uh, 
term, and we, we typically apply that term just to justification. And he does deal with that term here uh, in verse 18 when he says, you were not redeemed with, and he talks about, but he's talking about that moment when we trust Christ. But uh, the issue of audience is highly disputed, and people will use this verse uh, the the passage about the the way of life you inherited from your forefathers to link it to Gentiles. And they'll say this proves he's talking to mainly Gentiles. But you know, there's so much imagery here with uh, the Exodus and coming out. I, I think the forefathers, after they had been released from Egypt, uh took a, a wild turn in not believing God, not trusting his promises, uh, which ended up costing them uh, 40 years of wandering in the desert, not to mention that uh, all those 20 years and older died except Caleb and, and Joshua. So, um, that, you know, it. Some can, I've heard it argued several different ways, uh, but I tend to think it's more Jewish than it is Gentile. Right. And once you covered verses 18 and 19, especially when you talked about the lamb, you tied it, I mean, you might have just done it briefly, but you tied that to the Passover. And as soon as I saw that, of course, the lamb spotless, that's a direct tie to the Passover lamb, which I don't think Gentiles would understand. That, that's right. I, why would he talk about it in those terms? Uh, sacrificial lamb means nothing to Gentiles. I mean, they're going to have to be taught that, but that's a very Jewish concept and idea. So that's why I kind of lean that way, even though some some very brilliant people take it the other way, that it's mainly Gentiles. And then also, if you think about it too, I mean, you think of the calf that Aaron magically made, or it just, sorry, Aaron just threw the gold together and a calf magically came out. Yes. <laughs> but you think about that made from gold, and then throughout Israel's history, you have kings that aren't good making idols and things out of silver or whatever. So I can totally see how verse 18, in those negative connotations tied to the Jews' forefathers. and has, I mean, because I think... Maybe the reason people say Gentiles is because it's a, in a bad light. It's it's not a great light. That's right. No, that, so you're exactly say, right. And so they say, oh, this is written to Gentiles. But if you look at the history of Israel and the kingdoms, especially when they split, I mean— No, you're, you're exactly right on that because, uh, number one, they say it because of geography, because it's in Asia Minor. But the second reason is because rarely uh, when the terms in the New Testament are used— referring to the forefathers, that's generally speaking in a very positive light. And to put this in this way, they say that's that's too negative a light that uh, Peter would draw, so he must be referring to Gentiles. But uh, I just don't find that logic compelling. Uh, like you see in the flow of this passage, uh, it, it seems to me that it leans more the other way to, towards a more Jewish audience. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to keep that in mind as we go through the book, that while it is, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's a mixed audience just because of where they are. Other people are going to pick this up, you know. I think it's that's not safe. solely Jewish. But it is interesting as we go through First Peter to keep in mind that Jewish perspective 
in it that you wouldn't see in Paul's writings, for example. Right. Well, thanks for breaking down those two sermons um, and catching us up. And thank you all for listening to Just One More Thing from Sunrise Church. Sunrise Church.